Welcome to the Ben and Tony podcast, and today we have Jamie Russo, the author of the breakthrough book, The Underdog Paradox, which documents the journey of five remarkable entrepreneurs overcoming adversity in order to find success. Jamie was previously the number one hire at WeWork Labs in DC, where he launched a startup accelerator for social ventures. Jamie is a fantastic storyteller and such an earnest, kind individual. His stories of entrepreneurs will inspire you to believe you can accomplish more. And our vulnerable chat on mental health is a much-needed conversation for everyone going through a struggle right now. An overall heartwarming episode, I know that Jamie's journey as a writer will continue to bring out the best in people all over the world. Jamie Russo, considered warm and a storyteller. I'll share a little secret with you. My highlight is without a doubt the story of Luau. If you flick to around about 21 minutes in, you're going to get straight into that. Jamie tells that story with such passion and devotion to accuracy. And be sure to circle back to the beginning after looking at that, because Jamie is full of interesting commentary on mental health, kindness, we work, and more. And we're very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor made by our very own Jesse K. Thank you guys so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, I wanted to dig straight into that kind of first moment. You described yourself when we were chatting before as ex-finance uh, burnout. Um, so taking that kind of leap of faith from finance to WeWork, what was that like? And what did that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought for so many years of my life that I was like following in my dream career path. And for me, when I was in undergrad, like studying business, I thought, yeah, I'm going to like come out and go work on Wall Street and work in finance. And then the financial crisis in 2009 happened. And I was like, wait, no, absolutely not. Like I have no interest in going to New York and being an iBanker, but had this finance degree and was really interested in leveraging it in maybe like a slightly different way than a lot of my classmates were using it. Uh, upon graduation in 2011, I went to go work at an investment management firm that helps universities and nonprofits manage all their endowment money. And I spent five years there building tools and technologies and products that some of the world's largest institutional investors use to manage their investment portfolios. So these would be folks typically with anywhere from, you know, a billion dollars in assets and up, uh, building the tools, building the tech that they would use on a daily basis. I love that. It was very entrepreneurial in nature. Um, the types of clients that I got to work with included, uh, you know, Harvard University and, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and so many different organizations that I really have a, a lot of respect for. Um, but five years in, I kind of hit a wall. And I felt to myself that I wasn't necessarily pursuing the career path that I was happy with. I thought for many, many years that being someone that had like this highly entrepreneurial natureness, that I should be working in the startup world. <laughs> and so I just quit. Like I, I just quit and thought to myself, like, I, I really want to go work for like one of the hottest companies in the U S right now. And it just so happened that WeWork was launching a new business line in Washington, DC called WeWork labs, which was their home for early stage startups. And at the time, like WeWork was maybe one of the biggest rocket ships there was out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I came in and my role at WeWork was to 
build their first startup incubator for social entrepreneurs, which is really a beautiful fit for me because I, I love startups. I love companies that are mission-oriented, mission-driven, uh, generating social impact. And I got to work alongside 30 early stage companies that were building businesses of force for positive change in the world. So super cool, super interesting experience. Um, but I guess we'll get to it in just a bit. Like we all know, we all know the story if we work uh, and if we don't, I'm happy to share a little bit about it. But uh, my, my time there only lasted about a year and a half um, before I was kind of figuring out what was next. So I, I'd, I'd be curious to know when you were, when you made that decision to leave your job in finance, uh, seemed, did it happen all at once? Was there like a, a day where you kind of realized I need to get out of here because it's a big moment, right? I think you can, we can look back and say, yeah, I moved from finance to WeWork. That seemed like a, the right thing to do at the time. But I would imagine, did you have any doubts about your decision? Did there were people giving you advice saying, don't leave. This is stability. This is a good thing for you to do. I was doing a part-time uh, MBA at the time. And I was really interested in leveraging that degree to pivot into tech. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea that I'd be pivoting into a, a real estate company that disguised itself as a tech company. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah. I, I thought I was going to leverage that degree to pivot into tech. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be startups or late stage companies or high growth companies. I, I knew that for you know, maybe two years. And heading into my final year uh, of grad school, I, I thought to myself, like, I can do one of two things. Like, I can wait to graduate and then go find my dream job, or I can take advantage of having my kind of third year wide open in front of me at school and just start applying with all of my friends that were in the full-time program. <laughs> And, and so I just did that. I, I applied to maybe three or four companies in Washington, DC, um, because I, I knew I, I was gonna be you know, continuing my education there for another year. Um, and I just got really, really lucky with, with finding this role at WeWork. Um, so, uh, yeah. It sounds, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you, you, you didn't have any doubts at the time, or maybe, maybe if I'm, I'm painting that picture correctly, like, Sounds like you had a pretty clear idea of what you wanted to do in that moment. I, I was, I was like very mentally sick at the time. Like I was burned Damn. out. Like I was very, very, very burned out uh, working in finance by day at, uh, at a company that I loved, but didn't feel fulfilled in. And then going to school from six to 9 PM every single night and then getting home at 10 o'clock and on the weekends doing schoolwork and like planning all these additional extracurriculars. I ran a couple of student organizations on campus um, doing all the recruiting, doing all of the trips, like all of that stuff was just piling and piling and piling on top of each other that like, I hit a breaking point in my last summer heading into my final year. And I just thought I need to get out of this. Like I need to get out of what I'm doing right now, this routine that I am in and I need to try something new. And that something new is we work. Got it. I mean, it's, it's definitely like, sadly, not an atypical thing that I hear from a lot of my friends in finance, they hit a five year and they, you know, there's definitely symptoms of burnout, which build up and they get to a stage where it, you know, it hits a breaking point and you've got to actually make a decision. Um, and I'm always interested in, okay, what are the, kind of some of the earlier signs of break of burnout um, that you can start to spot and make those decisions earlier? Because, you know, as you, you described it, uh, you, you weren't well at the time, it was really like taking a drain on you. Yeah, it, I, I never want anyone to ever reach that breaking point. I felt like I had hit rock bottom. I hadn't been sleeping well for months. 
I went three or four nights in a row without sleep and just realized I needed to make some sort of a dramatic change. Wow. And like those changes were just like starting to cut things out of my life. Like I had to quit four or five extracurricular activities that helped, but it didn't fix it. Uh, I had to like delegate a ton of things at work that helped, but like didn't fix it. What I had to do was just make a, a dramatic shift in where I was prioritizing my time. Um, and going to WeWork for me was that was that break. Um, it was a break for six to nine months uh, and then <laughs> just another headache. But uh, yeah, it, I, I think everyone kind of goes through these experiences where they feel like they're, they're reaching these breaking points. And I think for me now, I've now learned my limit. Yeah, I've learned my limit. I've been able to now notice and identify that limit in other people. So I try not to allow others to to reach that limit. Um, But I I know where my boundaries are. And I think mental health and physical health are really interesting things to juxtapose because I grew up uh, an athlete. I I played soccer and tennis very competitively in high school. I was a four-year varsity letter winner uh, for tennis in college. And like, I knew my physical limits with myself. my entire life. And I, I pushed myself very, very far uh, in my ability to, you know, with mental strength, but I'd never pushed myself this hard before. And I just reached that limit. And, uh, and knowing where that is for yourself is really important. There's a huge lesson in that. And what, what are some of those kind of signs that you, you, you know, you say you can kind of spot it in yourself, but also in others, um, for folks who are trying to look after themselves or the people around them, what are some of those early signs and what are the mitigators that you can use? Some of the signs for me are just uh, like franticness, not, not knowing like where to prioritize my time, feeling like I'm being stretched too thin in too many different directions at the same time. The things that help me, number one, uh, are at journaling. Like I, mm-hmm. I believe a lot in uh, writing as a form of like personal therapy. And that's what eventually led me to writing my book. Uh, but I, I think that writing is a really powerful mechanism for us to um, take a look introspectively at ourselves and, and find the things that are important to us. Uh, and, and so that was a, a really powerful thing to me. Um, the other thing too is, I mean, seeking professional help is the most important thing that anyone can do um, within a couple of minutes of speaking to a therapist, I had realized that I was flying off of the rails. <laughs> like, what was I doing to myself? He, he took a look at my schedule and was like, why, why are you doing this? Like, what is, what are, what are you trying to achieve here? Uh, just looking at like, you can never stack up accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment and feel fulfilled. Like at a certain point, like there's just no, no more that you, you feel like you can achieve. So like, getting really comfortable with what your personal goals are, not what everyone else's view of success looks like, but like, Mm. what does success look like for me? That's so important. And something it's it's something that can be very, very hard for us, especially in a society or in a place like Twitter, where I think we were introduced, where everyone's just like measuring success based on followers. And that's, that's not a measurement of success. Like the achievements that we have, the degrees that we earn, like those are not measurements of success either. You'll see me talk a lot on Twitter about, like, I'm just trying to be a good person. Uh, I might not talk about that, but those are certainly like type of actions that I try to apply each and every single day. And the reason for that, like the reason I talk about the importance of kindness and optimism and positivity and all of that is not just to like blow smoke in people's faces, but actually um, those are the things that are important to me. 
like through all of all of these life experiences that I've had, I just want to be remembered at the end of the day as a good, kind person. That's it. I want to treat people the way that I want to be treated. That's it. And and I think those are 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 things that I can strive towards each and every day without feeling like I'm like burning out. <laughs> and I hope other people can kind of learn from that too. It's um it's something I don't you don't hear very much. I mean, everyone's like, hey, what are you optimizing for? What are you maximizing for? Is it money? Is it success? Is it leverage? Is it uh, network? You know. But, you know, I think there's something to be said for focusing on integrity and kindness. Um, and, you know, that probably came really clear to you through your process of journaling. So that's, that's really interesting. I, I don't have any secrets. Uh, I also uh, know that for, for some people, the right fit is chasing money or chasing titles or chasing other things. Like that is a great motive. That's a great motivator. And it works really, really well for some people. Uh, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, it doesn't work for me anymore. It was something that I, I thought was really important to me uh, in my 20s and, and something that I'm no longer chasing now in my 30s. I feel like I, I've achieved everything like that I would ever want to throw onto a resume mm-hmm. and uh, at least a, a professional resume in, in that sense. And, and now I'm just building my personal resume. Mm. Uh, and, and so I, one of the stories I, I, I oftentimes tell is like at the start of 2020, I had left WeWork and I was beginning to try and figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And on my last day at WeWork, I handed in my computer and realized in that moment, like, wait, how am I, like, what am I going to do? I just handed in my only computer. (laughs) So I went to the Apple store and I bought a computer and the guy behind the counter asked me, what are you going to do with this? He was trying to figure out like if I needed like the MacBook Pro or the MacBook Air, (laughs) if I needed like you know, is this guy got a big budget or a small budget? I just told him, I was like, I just want to be a writer. And I don't know where that came from, really. I've been thinking about it for a while. But um, like when I left WeWork, I kind of made this commitment in the back of my head. I was like, I'm going to write nine, nine, I'm going to write 500 words a day for 90 straight days and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I just want to start creating some content. And I did that. I did it on, of all places on LinkedIn, because I thought I was going to use that content to land my dream job. So I started writing about all the things that I had learned over the course of uh, business school and studying finance and startups and raising venture capital and, and building businesses. I wrote about all of that stuff. And through the course of it, like amassed a massive audience on, on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn was rolling out a new feature, the LinkedIn newsletter. And I, I got to be like an early beta tester of it. Mm. And I grew my newsletter from zero to 10,000 subscribers in 90 days. And anyone would like look at that and think like, oh damn, like that's that's incredible, like that's great. But what I found was the people that I ended up writing for, it was a very much a corporate audience, it was not the people who like I was drawn to in my heart. Uh, I really wanted to write for other creators or for other entrepreneurs or for other solopreneurs. Like those are the people that I felt like I wanted to connect with. Yet I was connecting with people who, as a result of seeing my resume and my LinkedIn bio, were really interested in getting to know Jamie. But that wasn't me. Like I just shared with you guys, like I'm that finance burnout. Like I am the guy who spent two years at WeWork during like one of the crummiest times to ever be at WeWork. Like that was not me. Like I wanted to start sharing more about me, the person. And that's what brought me to Twitter last summer of 2020. And I started on Twitter with 150, 200 followers Mm -hmm. last May. 
And like from May until today, we're sitting here January, uh, February of 2021 now, eight, nine months, uh, I, I have not even amassed an audience on, on Twitter, half of the size of the audience that I built on, <laughs> on LinkedIn. Right. Uh, well, not even, but, uh, but what I have found is really exciting people, really interesting people who I have the ability to exchange ideas with rapidly and uh, not just exchange I ideas, but like get fast feedback on the types of things that I'm working on yeah. and jump on Zoom calls and learn more and pick brains and like be collaborative uh, be entrepreneurial. And, and I've found that to be so much more rewarding. So, um, so for me, kind of coming back to the original question, like, I think that there is a, a time and a purpose for a professional resume. Mm. I'm just no longer interested in building that. Like I'm interested in building my personal resume. What, a, what an incredible distinction. I wanted to kind of jump in as well. You know, you said, uh, obviously, we work had a, a rise and fall, um, which you kind of lived through. So you landed what you thought was, you know, a dream job at WeWork. Um, what was the experience of kind of, you know, entering that world um, and then writing it up and then back down? What was it like being on the inside of all of that? It was, it was wild. Like the, the time that I spent there was so rewarding because I had the chance to work alongside 30 early stage entrepreneurs doing some of the most incredible work. So whether it was a former refugee from South Sudan building video games for peace and social impact or uh, Whoa. a gentleman, yeah, I mean, like, uh, or, um, you know, we had a gentleman who was uh, incarcerated at the age of 16 in adult maximum security prison, and he's now building a mobile application that keeps families more closely connected to their incarcerated loved ones. I mean, these people were people that were really inspiring me to kind of want yeah. to come to work each and every day. Um, so I was like managing that side of my, my life and my world and my work career, um, while all around me, just like the craziness uh, of what WeWork was, was happening. Um, at, at times, like, I, f I felt like there in like those last couple of months, I was just like living in a movie. Like you would hear things in the news and you'd be like, there's no way that's true. And then the next day you'd find out like, you know, through an executive memo that, yeah, actually that's, that's true. Um, those wow. stories were true. Um, and we just need to like move on to the next day. Yeah. The, the next day, like, all right guys. And then the next day you'd find out some crazy thing in the news and you'd be like, there's, there's no way, there's just no way that's true. And you just, you just to be like, what on earth is going on here? So um, I got to see like so many different sides of it, like the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And, and all, all that I can say, um, which, is, which is very little is, it was a very formative time of my life and my career. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what good leadership looks like. I learned a lot about what bad leadership looks like. Um, and, and I got to you know, experience all of that firsthand um, at, at a at a company that was you know in many ways like a sweetheart, but then you know seeing that that rise and fall um, was was so interesting to see on the inside. So and and it sounds like you had two aspects to like you had one aspect of your job that was super inspiring, which is the WeWork Labs part, where you got to connect with entrepreneurs who maybe made you think of the world in different ways, maybe inspire you to do some great things. At the same time, you're dealing with this sort of corporate craziness of one of the most, I guess, infamous companies at the time when it came to things that were happening on the inside. Uh, when it comes to the stuff about WeWork Labs, could you explain a bit more about your, your actual role there and what, what some of your takeaways were? Because you're work, so you're working with entrepreneurs that were funded by WeWork and then were you advising them on like what they should be doing? Like, how did that work? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So WeWork Labs was uh, WeWork's home for early stage startups. It was like a micro community within our larger WeWork community. Um, it was more of an incubator um, for early stage ventures. Typically, it would be a company anywhere from like pre-seed through Series A. So very early stage. Most of these uh, most of these companies were like pre-revenue. Some of them were pre-market fit, product market fit. Um, a lot of them were in the process of like raising their first round of institutional capital. And what was really interesting about the business model is uh, WeWork did not invest directly in these companies. Instead, our goal was to help them build sustainable businesses that would make a good investment for others. Um, there were probably like a, a handful of companies that were invested in by WeWork on the side, but globally, um, over the course of, of my time there, we, we grew WeWork Labs from zero to 100 incubators all over the globe. Um, so over 5,000 entrepreneurs were a part of our community. And, and so from anywhere from where I was managing a program in Washington, DC to New York, to uh, Paris, to London, to Singapore and you know Southeast Asia, all over the world managing this network of, of really, really interesting um, kind of early stage businesses. So for me, the lessons that I was learning were like the lessons that anyone would learn in an early stage company, like how to, how to find a co-founder. <laughs> Damn, that can be hard. Or how to deal with any adversity that uh, you might have when like launching a, launching a product in the market. Or, or what it's like to, to raise your first round of institutional capital when you're an unproven first time founder. Um, all of those things. Like I said at the very beginning, uh, my, my program was a very, very special one. Uh, the majority of the entrepreneurs in our program were building businesses as a force for positive change. So we had a little bit of a, a micro community ourselves, even within the WeWork Labs community of, of entrepreneurs that were really mission driven, who were um, tackling some of the world's largest issues, whether it was climate change or world peace. Um, and I, I think that was a really interesting way for us to you know, band together um, towards like, uh, whether it was the same cause or not, didn't matter. Like just having that same sort of heart and mind um, because together, I mean, the group of us, uh, so many people, I include a lot of them in my book um, are doing such interesting and extraordinary yeah. things now. That, that's fascinating because again, going from finance to going to, it sounds like there were a lot of like social entrepreneurs, social impact entrepreneurs. It's not like you were just, managing like a fintech accelerator, but you literally swung to the side of where people were doing very ambitious things that uh, were, were about helping people and helping society weren't just about like, let's say super capitalistic fintech companies. It sounds like it was an actually an, an inspiring group of people in more ways than one. Yeah, yeah. It, you'll, you'll probably hear me say that like every great business oftentimes starts with a great story and I think that's why I really like writing. Every great business starts with a great story, and all of the people in my program had great stories. Mm -hmm. So uh, they were they were great people. They were great human beings with high potential that possessed some sort of extraordinary transformational life experience that made them magnetic human beings. So whether they were building a business or a personal brand or anything else, they were immediately separated from the pack. That is 
an incredible statement. Um, mm -hmm. what, what I'm picking up there is that, okay, so these people, because as, as, before you said the, that last couple of sentences, I was about to ask you like, what made these people special? And if I heard you correctly, it was that they all went through some transformative uh, life experience that made them magnetic. So is, is it what makes a great story behind a great business, at least from the, the ones you've witnessed, is it the fact that the founder went through some sort of crazy, super unique, perhaps intense um, uh, experience in their life? And then is another part their ability to, to weave a story around that? Because I think they're slightly different skill sets, right? There's like, you could have a very intense life experience that in, compels you to do something great. And it's maybe it's a very wonderful story, but there's also this element of packaging it and actually being a great communicator, which not everybody is. Um, what, what were the, the elements that made a good story altogether for some of these companies? Yeah, I, I think the best way to do this is through giving an example. So the first character in my book, his name is Luol Mayen. And I met Luol when he was 22 years old. He had been living in the United States for three months at the time. Luol spent the first 22 years of his life growing up in a refugee camp. And Luol being... Uh, South Sudanese, his mother had fled the civil war in South Sudan following the Boer massacre in her hometown on foot 200 miles south in seek of a place of refuge. While on the way, she bore a son and that was Luol. And so Luol like grew up his entire life in a refugee camp in Northern Uganda, not knowing or thinking that there was ever gonna be anything beyond those four walls. Yeah. And when he was 13 years old, he was standing there at a refugee registration center. And for the first time in his life, he saw a computer and he asked his mom what it was. And she said to him, Luol, like, that's a computer. And he said, well, can I have one? And nobody in his family, nobody in his village had ever had a computer. But one of the most important things for someone like Luol, this is what Luol tells me is, one of the greatest things that he has in a situation like that is hope. And his mother didn't want to destroy his, her son's hope. So she saved money for three years, working as a seamstress, earning $7 a month to be able to save enough money to be able to buy her son a laptop computer. Wow. And, and he got it. And I mean, first of all, like he thought, wow, if, if she could do this for me, like anything is possible. Yeah. Number one. Number two, he said, uh, if I don't learn how to use this thing for good, my mother is never going to get my brothers another gift. Number two. <laughs> and number three, um, number three, I, he had to figure out like where to charge his computer, where to be able to access like electricity and Wi-Fi. Um, he walked three hours every single day. Um, just to get access to a generator so that he could sit down and charge his computer every single day and three hours back. So long story short, like while living in a refugee camp, Luol taught himself how to build video games. Somebody while there handed him a floppy disk one day, CD-ROM, I should say, and on it was Grand Theft Auto Vice City. And he just sat there and he was like, this thing is so incredible. Like, what is this? Like, did it fall from heaven? He found out that someone actually like builds these things, right? So he taught himself how to build games. Wow. Um, <laughs> and you know, he built his first game, which is called Salam. Uh, and the first version of Salam, uh, you know, the character is is meant to be 
protecting their community or their village. It's kind of like one of those tower defense games. Mm -hmm. And the whole story behind his game relates back to his hometown that his mother had to flee, right? So that's a really powerful message and idea. Like Luol is productizing his own personal story through building his games, putting players in the shoes of a refugee. Whenever players make in-app purchases in his games, they're simultaneously giving small portions of those proceeds to refugees. Wow. What an incredible so story. When you think, amazing. Just when amazing. you think about, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you think about what I'm sharing with you, like the reason I'm sharing this is because Luol has an extraordinary lived experience Yeah, that he is productizing through his games. And this is something that I think extraordinary entrepreneurs have the power and ability to do. Um, and not all of us have the ability to walk in Luol's shoes. Um, but people like Luol have something very, very special about them. And one of them is that underdog factor. What an incredible, humbling experience. And, and also, you know, how uniquely positioned he is to do that. Like you say, I mean, he's, he's the, one of the only people in the world who can do exactly what he has done uh, and, and, make it, and make it work like that. And I there guess were, there uh, were a lot of there were a lot of people very early on who were like warning me or advising me and saying, like, I mean, Luol and I were kind of building his next game in public almost, so to speak. People are saying, hey, what happens if someone steals his idea? His next his next game is going to be a high tension runner game like Temple Run, uh, the, except the character in the game is not escaping from a temple. The character is his mother, and she's escaping from a war torn region. Oh I said, I said, if, if someone no, no steals this idea, that. it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it, it doesn't take, take the whole idea, take everything. It's, it's Luol that makes everything here special. Um, and, and at this point, like the, I think the whole industry sort of recognizes that in 2019, Luol was recognized by Facebook gaming as uh, the global gaming citizen, which is their one person throughout the world that's bringing people together through the power of video games. Incredible. And, and he's now able to leverage that celebrity um, to be able to build, you know, the next generation of, of his vision. Um, but none of, you know, none of this would be possible without Luol having those vicious, surreal, real life experiences um, that have enabled him to come up with ideas like these. Just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I, I feel like that story you just told is the kind of story that can change someone's life just by hearing it. And I can yeah. hear in the, 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 the power and the words that you described that it, it seems like it's changed your life. So you, you met him through WeWork Labs and it sounds like, I mean, of course you wrote a whole book about it. There's several people who've had that impact on you through their, their own story. Um, and was it, did this all happen through WeWork Labs? Because you know, despite all the ups and downs of the company, if you can just meet one person like that through WeWork Labs, that, that's life-changing. Yeah, a, a lot of the people that I, I share stories about in my book, I, I either met through WeWork or or, um, or a number of other like personal life experiences that I have had. So um, yeah, I, the reason I, I wanted to write this book um, is because I, I was really interested in connecting the dots between what made some of these people so special. Um, I mean, yeah. you, could write, you could write multiple books about Luol, there will be movies made about Luol, but but I, I didn't want to write a book just about Luol. I wanted to learn more about what made people like Luol very, very special. Um, the title of my book, The Underdog Paradox, essentially what that means is, uh, I wanted to test this idea. A lot of people say that being an underdog is one of the greatest competitive advantages that there is. 
but I was looking and thinking about Luol and thinking to myself like, wow, what a privileged view to say that Luol, yeah. right. a, a, a boy who grew up in a refugee camp, who had to walk three hours a day when he was 13 years old just to charge his computer hunted. had an advantage over yeah. anybody else. So I wanted to test that idea and kind of like flip it on its head and say, yes, quite certainly people have lifted out hands and helped hoist Luol up to where he is today. Um, there's a you know, number of people um, in the gaming community that have done that for him, but like there's, there's, there's really no advantage to what he has had to go through. Then I flip that idea on its head another way. I say, all of us have the ability to kind of craft our own underdog stories. Mm -hmm. When I published my book uh, and I announced it on Twitter, I kind of been secretly writing it. Uh, a couple of friends, friends and family knew about it, but- and This is what you were doing with that, with that first laptop that you got from the Apple store. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a, a couple of people knew that I, I've been writing a lot, but uh, for the most part, the Twitterverse didn't know. And that's where I've been cultivating a community for a while. Uh, when I announced the book, a lot of people thought I was writing the book about myself. And honestly, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, the only thing about me that's in the book is like, these are the people that have inspired me to dream big. I think they're going to inspire a lot of other people to dream big too. These are the people that provide us with a blueprint to identifying our own mm -hmm. intangibles. And the example that I give at the end of the book is like, anyone can be an underdog. Uh, Steph Curry, yeah, it can be an underdog. Steph Curry has two narratives. The Steph Curry who was born into an NBA superstar, father of a family with a mother who is like a standout volleyball player, uh, you know, all the money in the world really that he would need to be able to train at the best gyms in the country. Um, that's one side of Steph, the silver spoon. On the other side, there's this, uh, undersized guard who went to a small college who wasn't drafted particularly high, uh, who, uh, you know, had to change the game, uh, in order to compete at the highest of levels. And, and through that channeling of that underdog spirit has been able to, you know, achieve great things. And even still today as a NBA, uh, champion and MV multi-time MVP, Steph Curry still has the ability to channel an underdog mindset each and every day. We see that lived out through things like Under Armour commercials that he stars in. Yeah. So, so I think all of us have the ability to, in some ways, craft our own hero's journey in our lives that makes us the, the central character of those stories. And, and I want people to realize that. I, I, I love what you said just then. And one thing that particularly stood out to me was around, you, you can ch they change the game. Um, you know, could you expand on what you mean by that? Because I think there's something really interested in, okay, if you're forced to play by a different set of rules, you can really make, you know, high impact happen. Um, it's, it, there is a competitive advantage in that, obviously not in the actual story itself, but go into that a little bit more, you know, what does it mean to actually play a different game? Yeah. I, I talk a lot about different underdog strategies and tactics in my book. And there's, there's a lot, I mean, the one key takeaway is that underdogs still play by the rules, but they find ways to bend them. Or they find different little nuances within the rules that enable them to capitalize in a really special way. Mm -hmm. So with Steph Curry, it's you know his dynamic ability to shoot three-pointers. 
<laughs> I mean, he's got a lot of uh, he's got a lot of angles of his game that are phenomenal. But uh, you know, his his innate ability to shoot is is pretty special. Um, for for others like um, like Luol, it is like their ability to look beyond their own circumstances to maintain hope and a positive mindset and optimism that there is a brighter opportunity for them tomorrow. I think it's very easy. There's a portion of my book where I dissect this idea, uh, this, this one idea in psychology called learned helplessness. It's this idea that uh, children growing up in the rural slums of, of Hawaii in the 1950s, for some reason, uh, a small portion of them were able to kind of come out and emerge in one of these um, studies. And that what they found was, despite being like highly vulnerable, these children grew and developed to discover that they were actually invincible. Mm. And, and I think the, there's two sides of this. Like, number one, we might view ourselves in our current situation as unable to control anything. That concept, that idea is called learned helplessness. You know, you fail a math test, you fail another math test. You might think I'm not a math person. You might think there's no way that I can ever do math. So you might go throughout the rest of your life just telling everyone, all your friends, like, oh, I'm not gonna calculate the tip. I'm not a math person, <laughs> you know? Um, alternatively, learned helplessness has the ability to be combated using this concept called learned optimism. And through learned optimism, uh, we just change the way that we believe our circumstances are. So an easy example might be if you guys are familiar with sports analogies, tomorrow we might be playing the you know, best team at the top of the tables. And uh, we might think to ourselves like, man, we're gonna get blown out. We're gonna get destroyed. If you think that way, it's gonna probably happen. But if instead you think, man, we're gonna show them, like we're gonna show them the, the best of who we are. Like we might not win despite the outcomes, but like we're gonna go and show our best tomorrow. And through just changing those tiny little beliefs, um, you know, we have the ability to change a lot of different things. I use this phrase in my book, I'll just conclude with this. It's the underdog mantra. It's this idea that underdogs don't think I can't. They think I'm going to prove I can. And sometimes it's their desire to prove to others that they can, but for those that are the strongest, oftentimes they're just trying to prove to themselves. Mm, the the framework of what they're judging against changes. It's it's no longer about you know um, we're not judging against okay this person is doing this and, and I need to compare myself to that. It's actually where was I yesterday? Where was I the day before? And am I making progress against each day? Um, and I think that's really powerful. I, I'd say also that what you said about learned helplessness versus learned optimism. It's something that probably everybody in the world needs to hear because it could be applicable whether you're an athlete, whether you're a high school student, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're um, older and going through a career transition. I, I love the examples that you mentioned, but have you, how have you applied that to yourself? Maybe do you have an example of when you went from learned helplessness to optimism or, or even maybe if it's not yourself, like a, a friend or a family member too? I mean, one I think, interesting, yeah, one interesting yeah. analogy to that is actually going from, okay, you have finance to you wanted to write a book. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of really good examples. I, I would say, um, so one, one of the best examples that everyone that listens to this podcast can relate to right now is the struggle and frustration of all of us being locked at home during a global pandemic. Uh, 
And, and I talk in my book about other crises from Hurricane Katrina to campus shootings. Um, there's, there's some intense trauma that human beings go through as a result of these crises. And there's, there's, there's ways that we can look at our situation today. And it's difficult, but some of us can look at our current situation and think, oh, I'm stuck at home. I'm just going to sit on a couch and watch TV all day. What else am I going to do? Or we can think, you know what? Now's the perfect time for me to start that passion project of mine and go out and write a book. Whatever it is for anybody, there's different ways that we can frame our situations that adapt to that idea of learned helplessness versus learned optimism. And I, I certainly ch channeled this a bit. Uh, when writing my book. But uh, another really important thing is, especially during a time like this in a global pandemic, what one of the most important things is, is the idea of social connection. Social connection is so important during crises like this. And you guys might feel it, you guys might see it. Um, the ability for us to be able to reach out to others and be lifted up through their spirits or for us to feel like we're able to lift up others' spirits. That's a really, really powerful thing um, that uh, a lot of underdogs use. Some of them build what we call wolf pack or a team of sidekicks. <laughs> you know, that social connection is really important. Uh, to be surrounded by people that believe in us is really important, which is why mentorship programs for, for children in underserved communities are so critical. Um, all of this is propelled by uh, a really important psychological phenomenon, which is that just really important component of, of social connection during, during times of hardship. I completely agree. I, and um, I feel, you know, uplifted even from just hearing, you know, your story so far and, um, uh, you know, the book and, and, and one of the stories within it. Um, so for folks who are, you know, want to buy the underdog paradox or take a glimpse inside, how would they get in touch? Where do they go? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the first place I would say is feel free to come check out my website. Uh, it's the easiest place to find my book. It's uh, jamierusso.me, J-A-M-I-E-R-U-S-S-O. Um, my, my book is available on Amazon. It's available in everywhere books are sold. Um, feel free to go out and support small businesses. Um, uh, I'm thrilled to be able to kind of have my book out there and, and, you know, 10,000 different bookstores, 130 countries. So anywhere, anywhere books are sold. Actually, Jamie, uh, on that topic of writing, what, what's your, what's your plan for the future now? Like, are you going full in on being an author? Because I think to, to set some context here, I think maybe five, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and even now the idea of being an author is, uh, kind of shaky, kind of intimidating but we also are in this sort of new media realm where it seems like more and more people have the ability to create their own podcasts or newsletters to monetize their influence. What's, what's your take on the world of writing and where do you see yourself in it as, as the future goes on? I, I introduce myself as a writer because it's the easiest way for people to understand like where I'm focusing and channeling my time, effort and energy. I think what's really cool about the creator economy and the passion economy is like, rather than thinking of, of myself even as a writer, what I'm really just at heart right now is a creative. My mom was an artist. If you wanna you know, describe what I'm trying to do and trying to achieve is, is art. 
or writing or something else. Like that's, that's what I'm really interested in. I think there's so many tools at our disposal today to be able to, to turn some of that creation into a, a career. I'm not, I'm not really that interested in, in dancing on TikTok, but I am really <laughs> interested. Sure? Okay. I, I mean, I, <laughs> Jamie, at the end of every episode, books. we schedule I, a, a three-way dance at the end of every episode on TikTok. So I hope you're ready for it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's where it's at. I, 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 maybe one of the things that Tony's getting at is like writing feels to a lot of people probably like a dying art or dying medium. Uh, with video and YouTube today, I think a lot of people are flocking to, to products like TikTok. Yeah. Um, what I'll say is writing is a form that has really transcended time. And totally. there's a lot of really interesting research out there, like despite the rise of eBooks, despite the rise of audiobooks, book sales, physical books sales have not gone anywhere, which is crazy to me. But there's something special about holding a book. Um, I don't, I don't know. And I don't even care to predict whether physical books will be here in hundred years or 500 years, but there will be something very, very special about the written word that I believe will transcend time in ways that a lot of other mediums may not. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, video quality is always going to get stronger, whether we want to make an argument that, uh, YouTube in 25 years, is going to be more augmented reality than there's just so many things with the rise of technology that written word and, and, and true art, I think is something that's timeless, that's really special. And I just want to dig into that. From petroglyphs to eBooks, just awesome. Um, so Jamie, we, we actually asked two questions to close. Um, and we'll start with one of them, which is a more serious one. Then Anthony is going to hit you with a curveball if you haven't listened to one of our other podcasts. Um, so you're sitting across from your 18 year old self. Um, what do you, what advice do you give him? I, I'm really proud of the career path that I, I followed and I created. I would not be here today if I didn't take the small steps that I needed to, to get here. Um, I think my advice to most 18 year olds is the, the first thing that you need to do in your career is get some experience. And, yeah. and yes, there are hot shots that can uh, start coming out of high school, earning a million dollars a year on YouTube and heck yeah, more power to you kids. But uh, I think there's something really important to developing some early skills finding our passions and it doesn't happen in the first 18 years of our lives. So I, I say like, don't hesitate to pursue college as something after high school. I think there's just something that's really interesting about a four year degree. I think there's something also interesting to say, especially in a global pandemic that education is certainly gonna be changing a lot. And I am very interested and excited about what that might look like in the future, um, but get educated figure out what your skills are. Don't hesitate to go work for someone else first um, because I did. Um, I didn't want to, but I did. <laughs> and I, I learned a lot along the way. So that would probably be, if I was giving myself advice, my advice would be, don't be afraid to work for someone else for a couple of years. Don't be afraid to develop your toolkit um, and then branch out and, and don't be afraid to follow your passions. Anthony's gonna hit you with that curveball. Yeah, so slightly, Perhaps slightly less important, but perhaps just as important. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite uh, romantic comedy film, Jamie? Um, ooh, good question. Uh, I don't know if this <laughs> one is. counts. Well, I, I can get super cheesy. My favorite movie of all time is Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And, and really? I, I think of it actually time. fits in. It is so yeah. good. 
I, yeah. I've probably seen it. At, it is. I've probably seen it 200 times. Um, <laughs> I'm, and I'm probably not exaggerating. I, I'm not sure, but <laughs> I, I will, I will watch that movie, uh, literally on repeat, uh, with no problem. I don't know. I, I enjoy it every single time it uplifts me. I don't know why. Um, no, that's, that's a, a great one. answer. Hey, the Russell Brand at his finest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Well, Jamie, it's been amazing. I, I didn't. Re- by the way, guys, I didn't realize that my favorite movie of all time was a rom com until just now. So, <laughs> this is a big moment. This is a very big moment. You'll probably remember this. Yeah, yeah. This is a turning point. Talk about transitions. You know, this this is big. You've realized something special. Yeah, I think it's all up from here. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for coming on. It's been awesome to chat. Yeah, thank you guys so much awesome. for having me. Been a pleasure. And Jamie, uh, actually, sorry, just like quickly, like where should people find you? Uh, we'll also include this in the notes and stuff. Best yeah. website, obviously, on, on, on Amazon. Sounds like yeah. it's Twitter, Twitter mostly. Yeah, yeah, Twitter. Uh, so you guys can find me on Twitter at Jamie Russo. Find me, find my website, jamierusso.me. Uh, my newsletter, Good Note. I send out best ideas every single week from the best possible people. Um, and and yeah, the book, The Underdog Paradox, available everywhere books are sold.